turn to God's Word, if you would join me, and we're going to go to prayer. The kids are going to be going with Mrs. Krista today, and so if kids would like to join for Children's Church, that's okay with mom and dad, you guys can head back this time. Thank you, ladies, for helping with that. What an amazing ministry. Let's go to our God in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for another autumn. For the harvest that that uh, means that's coming. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for your provisions for us each day. Your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for what you've given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the families that you've blessed us with, for this church that we get to be a part of. And we thank you that you've given us your word, that we might have instructions for life and godliness. And so I pray that you would turn our attention to what your word says here. Might our, our um, ears be open. Might our minds understand and be engaging, and might our hearts be soft and tender towards you, that we would walk in obedience to what you instruct us to. Please glorify your Son, now we pray. Amen. Well, over this summer, we've been in several parts of the Bible, from Ruth to the Gospels, and throughout all of that, we've discovered the importance of a concept called chesed. And remember, you have to get that, that ch in there on the H, right? Um, chesed is the term that's been translated. There's no good English word for it, so we have to combine a few words. And we call it loving kindness. It, it's this faithful love, this, this, uh, this love that, that persists. And, and it's, we've discovered the importance of chesed in the life of the Christian. We saw it lived out in Ruth and her family. We discovered it exemplified through the example of our our Savior and His compassion, and we've considered its importance, thirdly, in the ministry of servant leaders within the life of the church. In conclusion, we're, we're taking a closer look at God's mandate that the church select qualified leaders to serve within the body, and, and you might think that this is kind of out of place in, in a kind of a rough series on biblical chesed, I believe it's very fitting that we would consider what God says are the qualifications for a leader uh, as we talk about his loving kindness and our loving kindness towards one another. I, I would like to propose to you that our mandate to test and examine our leaders before they are selected to actually lead is an act of chesed. It's an act of loving kindness from our God who graciously gave his instructions for how to choose people to lead. I, I'm so grateful that, that he is a God who, who he doesn't just let us flounder our way through life. He, he doesn't throw us in and go, have fun, hope you figure it out along the way. Uh, he's given us all that we need for life and godliness in his word. And, and he's shown us the path that we need to follow. Uh, but following this mandate is, is also an act of loving kindness from, from God's people who are, are careful not to put unqualified individuals in a place where they're going to be tested and, and find that, that they don't have the resources and the qualifications to do the job that they're supposed to be doing. And they, they end up getting frustrated and they get end, up, end up getting discouraged. And that act of, of testing and making sure a man is qualified before he serves in an office is an act of love, loving kindness towards him as well. And it's also an act of loving kindness because when we follow God's mandate, we honor God's safeguards, we show our love to him, but we are also loving the church and protecting the sheep. I'd like to suggest to you that 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we're kind of in the middle of right now, uh, where we find these qualifications given by our Lord, this text is a profoundly 
practical text that carries application not only for those who serve as elders and deacons, but for all of us who should be exemplifying these characteristics in our lives. This is why you need to pay attention to this list of qualifications. It's not something you just lift, read over, and, and it's, you know, if you're walking through a, a doctor's office and you, you see a, a, a job posting and you see what, you know, what are the qualifications to, to work here at this doctor's office, and you're thinking, well, I don't have any interest in working here because uh, that's not my field at all. And so you, you, you browse through it and you go, yeah, that's not for me, and you toss it aside. And, and it'd be similar to, to come to this text and say, well, I'm not a deacon. I'm not planning on being a deacon. I'm not planning on ever being a deacon or an elder, so I don't need to really even pay attention to this passage. And I'd like to suggest to you that that's not so. This text is for you as well, and these are the characteristics that each one of us should be pursuing in our lives. God's people, number one, play a role in selecting leaders, and that's the first reason I think we need to be paying attention to this text. God's people play a role in selecting the leaders who serve in our church. It's your responsibility to do the hard work and ask the hard questions, and we must take the mandate seriously regarding the people that we put in positions of authority. But, but as I mentioned, number two, the qualifications that God sets before us are not just a list of diplomas. It's not just a list of degrees that he gives us for what qualifies a person to serve. It, it's, not only a list of, it, it, it's not only a list of character traits that should be pursued by the leaders of the church, but it's also a list of character traits that should be walked out in our lives as well, every single one of us. These are qualities that all of God's people ought to emulate. And so... I ask you, as we continue through this very practical passage that gives us a list of qualities that we should be looking for in our leaders, that you would take some time to look through this list and to reflect on your own heart and your own life and your own, your own um, walk before your Savior. And ask if these requirements describe your character and how do you see yourself growing. And if you find yourself in, in this passage and you go, wow, I, I'm disqualified here. If I was asked to serve as a deacon, there's no way that I could do that. If, if that's you in any way, then what measures are you taking in order to serve the risen Savior and walk in a manner worthy of the one who died for you? Allow me to quickly review what we've discovered about deacons so far. Uh, first, we asked the question, what is a deacon? And we turned back to Acts chapter 6, where we discovered this story of the early church and a problem that arose regarding the widows that were there. And... We saw in this, this foundational passage for the office of deacons, even though th these men aren't called deacons in that passage, the, the verb and the noun come from a common root, and essentially it, it means that the deacon is a servant. He serves. A and those seven men that were chosen at that time that served in that capacity led to the office of deacon later on in the church history. Um, the first men who served in this way were given this very specific task where they served widows in the church. And they did so so that the apostles could remain focused on their call to serve through prayer and teaching of the word. Even the deacons here serve in a way so that the elders are able to focus on prayer and the teaching of the word and to serve in that way. We saw that the ministry of a deacon is indeed a calling vital to the life of the church. The ministry of the deacons uh, is, is hard work. It's not intended for those who are seeking public accolades or for those who give the bare minimum. Together with the overseer or elders, the deacon's ministry is, is one of service. Now, next we considered the primary passage where God gives us a list of prerequisites. And that's when we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
And so if you would turn there with me today, we're going to be in verses 8 through 13 still. In 1 Timothy 3, we see this, he begins with a list of qualifications for elders. And then in verses 8 through 13, he gives us a list of qualifications for deacons. And notice that this passage is, is not a list of bonus features. How many of you have ever gone car shopping? And you had to make that decision. Do I buy the LX, the EX, or the PX, or you know, whatever they all have? What, what features do I want to add to the base model of, of this car that I want to buy? Um, do I want just the essentials, or do I want the video uh, rear view mirrors, the automatic parking system, GPS, the Bluetooth add-ons, maybe a, a heater in the seat for that cold winter morning, maybe a button that you can push while you're in the house and it heats up your car before you go outside. Those are the add-ons. They're not necessary, but the bonus features are nice, aren't they? if you're willing to pay for it. First Timothy 3, I want you to understand, is not a list of bonus features. These are not add-ons that we hope might go with the, the deacon that we elect or the deacon that we put in that position. The, the passage, as we come to it, God, God does not give us a mandate where he says a deacon must be and then give us options of skipping over a few of them. A deacon must be these things. But I also want you to understand that this is not a list that demands perfection. We don't come to this list and find uh, this person has never sinned in their life. This person has never made a mistake. Or even in their leadership, they, they never come to a point where they go, oops, that, that wasn't the best way to do that. Uh, the leaders have to have the integrity to come at, out sometimes and say, please forgive me, what I did there was sinful, what I did there was wrong. For example, we find here that a deacon is called to be a man who is not double-tongued, which points to his call for integrity. But there are going to come moments that within that integrity, because he's a man of integrity, it means that he must ask for forgiveness for sinful behavior and for mistakes that he makes. So be careful that as you evaluate your own character, as well as the character of those who are nominated to lead, lead, not leave, please stay, um, Be careful that you are not demanding perfection from the time that they became a Christian. There are some who were not qualified to serve as deacons 10 years ago, but by God's grace, they've taken measures to mature and to grow in their Christian walk, and they're highly qualified today. So what are these qualifications for those who serve as deacons? Uh, first, we found that verses 8 through 9 give us five moral and spiritual requirements and last time we only had time for the first four of those, and so we stopped with just verse 8. But let's really quickly review those. The first qualification is that deacons must be dignified. The remainder of this passage is going to fill that out for us. It's going to show us what that dignity looks like within the office of a deacon. But by itself, the, the qualification stands on its own as well. It, it's a, a general requirement that indicates a deacon must be, be able to be taken seriously. Not that he doesn't have a sense of humor, but people need to take him seriously. If he's generally known to be a nice guy, but it is also obvious that he is not walking in obedience to God's word and then thus not filled with the Holy Spirit, then he does not pass the test. If, if he is generally known for foolish behavior, then he does not pass the test. A deacon must be dignified. Number two, he must not be double-tongued. 
Does he say one thing to one person and then say something else to the next? Is he honest? Is he consistent in the words that come out of his mouth? A deacon must be a man of his word. Thirdly, not addicted to much wine. This isn't to say that he's forbidden from drinking any alcohol, but he is he enslaved to it? We, we need to consider if our leaders are disqualified by their love for any substance, any substance that controls them, whether by overindulging or, or by um, uh, its control in their lives. Are they demonstrating self-control in their lives? Number four, we're taught he must not be greedy for dishonest gain. God mandates that deacons and elders demonstrate integrity in their finances. And so that catches us up to where we left off a week ago. And let's complete that first, that the first five moral and spiritual, spiritual qualifications. If you turn to verse 9, verse 9 mandates that a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, as you read that first time, might, we might need to take a couple look at, more looks at that one, right? Probably needs a little bit of help. The, the fifth requirement for a deacon is that he must hold to the teaching of Christianity in a way that his walk matches his faith. Let me say that one more time, and then let me, let me read verse 9 one more time. A deacon must hold to the teachings of Christianity in a way that his walk matches his faith. Again, verse 9 states, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's important that we understand that deacons are not charged with the same ministry of teaching that is expected of elders and pastors, but deacons are given the mandate to own their faith. Uh, the, the word mystery here, that, that sometimes confuses us Americans. Um, we, we, we have our own ideas of mystery. We talked about this before in other passages, but when you hear the word mystery, what do you think of? A good, what's that? <laughs> Movies, a mystery movie. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes, it's a mystery, who, who done it? Uh, a, a good book that, that, that uh, leads to a, a crime and, and then resolving that and bringing it to its conclusion. Or, or maybe you think, the, hear the word mystery and you go, yeah, can't understand it. So the deacons have to hold the things that they don't understand and yet they believe it. Is that what the passage says? No, not at all, not at all. When, when the New Testament uses the word mystery, it simply refers to something that was hidden previously but has now been revealed. It was a mystery. It was mysterious. It was not even heard of. Nobody had heard of the church because the Old Testament never talked about the church. And then when Jesus came, he started talking about this thing called the church. And throughout the New Testament, this mystery came to be known. The gospel, our faith, some things that the Old Testament sometimes prophesied, but in a way that it wasn't understood in, in the New Testament it has now been revealed. Therefore, the, the phrase mystery of the faith doesn't refer to some truth that's strange, something that's unknowable. But, but instead, it, it points to the message of the gospel, which every true believer has embraced. Deacons must understand the message of the good news, and they should have a basic understanding of the core teachings of the Christian faith. Earlier in 1 Timothy Paul had warned his young pastor friend of those who had swerved from a, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith in verse 5 of chapter 1. And then in subsequent verses, he describes the pitfalls of these persons. Because they swerved away from these qualities, 
they, they wandered away into to vain discussions. Later on, Paul's going to speak of some of those again. He's going to talk about how they made a shipwreck of their faith. That's not what we want for our deacons, is it? Note that the qualification, though, it contains more. Deacons do more than hold to sound doctrine. They also do so with a, with a clear conscience. In, in other words, this isn't just an academic exercise where, you know, we take a, a, a man who's, who's nominated for a position and say, okay, do you understand our doctrinal statement? Please, uh, please explain to us what the hypostatic union is. Uh, and, and go through a list of boom, boom, boom. You have to, it's, it's more than just an academic exercise of understanding big words, but uh, it, it, it's, making up of the, it's a making up of the mind about what is true. Holding to the faith with a clear conscience means that a deacon has made a decision of the will and his belief in sound doctrine is reflected in the way that he lives his life. And so the fifth qualification is that the deacon must hold to their faith with a clear conscience. Does their walk match their faith? Now, there are many who read this and they read a passage like this, and they, they question the idea of, of judging a person's character. Is that something that we should be doing? Should I be evaluating another person's life? Well, no, not before you evaluated your own. But we are called to evaluate and to consider, is this person qualified? A and I think God in his grace interjects verse 10 in, in the middle of this, this passage. And I think he does so in part to remind us that testing our leaders is vital for the health of the church. And so the passage pauses on the qualifications, and, and then in the middle of the passage, he goes on to say this. He says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Uh, scripture has much to teach us about grace, about kindness, about humility. And, and, I, and I think over the years, as Christianity has impacted culture, our culture sees those concepts as well, and they say grace, kindness, these are good things, right? Would you, would you agree that our culture looks and, and says kindness is something that we should pursue? And has culture always been that way? No, some, many cultures and, and cultures that we came from hundreds of years ago uh, embraced war and, and fighting and, and you know, whoever's strongest you know, wins. Uh, we live in a culture that embraces grace and kindness and humility. And, and so modern culture has discovered the beauty of some of these traits that have been taught in Scripture for thousands of years, but they implement them without the discernment that's provided by the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, when the church calls sin for what it is, the world responds and says, how dare you judge me? And, and when we come to a passage like this where, where the Scripture calls us and for the church to turn its attention to character and the inner qualities of a person, the world responds and says, you're so legalistic. And of course, our culture usually makes a fine point of casting judgment in the very next breath, right? Even if it claims to be the arbiter of love. However, I think 21st century Christendom oftentimes stumbles over the false teachings of the culture that we're embedded in. This has taken an unfortunate toll on the leadership of many churches because many of the individuals who choose and appoint elders and deacons, they have an aversion to anything that might feel like I'm judging someone else. 
to, to examine the, the character of a person. I, I, I'm not supposed to judge, so we're just going to throw them in and see how they do. That's not an act of love and kindness. That's not chesed. And then this in turn, what happens is it wreaks havoc on the leadership of many congregations. And it's led to the destruction within those congregations. Again, I would like to propose to you that we are demonstrating God's loving kindness when we obey the mandate and protect the church by holding to God's standards that he's given to us. In in another passage, Paul commands Timothy regarding the practice of of laying on of hands. Uh, Now, we read a passage like that and we go, laying on of hands. I mean, that sounds like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lay hands on you. Is that what happened in in 1 Timothy? He tells Timothy, don't be hasty in the the laying on of hands. And and it was a cultural practice, which we actually do in our church as well, in which uh, a a leader would be appointed to serve in an office. And the laying on of hands was a cultural symbol of associating yourself with a person. In the Old Testament, they did it with the lamb before they sacrificed it. They would lay hands on the lamb. Why would they do that? Because they were associating their guilt with what was going to be paid for by this lamb. Uh, And by putting their hand on the head of the lamb, they were associating the lamb and recognizing that that lamb was going to cover their sins. That lamb was going to pay the price that they should have paid. There was a substitute that took place, and so there was association that took place. In the church, when we lay hands on a leader, we are saying we recognize you and the qualities that God has has built within you, and, and so we are associating ourselves with you. We are endorsing you. We are putting our stamp of approval on your ministry. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul tells Timothy, he says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, Timothy. Timothy, in other words, don't, don't be so quick to just appoint anyone to a position of authority. Don't jump in without following God's instructions in these matters. And then he goes on in chapter 5 to note how those who do jump in, those who are hasty in just appointing anybody and everybody, they end up lead, excuse me, they end up taking part in the sins of others, Paul says. And what he means by that is if we are not careful to test the qualifications and the qualities of our leaders, what ends up happening is the church ends up suffering the consequences of that person's sin later on because they weren't ready to lead. And so verse 10 serves as this encouragement that, that this is actually God's sanctioned process. And he says, test your deacons first. This, now, is this done in an attitude of condemnation and, and judgment? And, and this is done graciously. It's done kindly. Uh, it, it's, it, it's done when confrontation comes out of it. It's done privately. It's to be done in love and kindness. But we need to test our deacons first and then let them serve if they prove themselves blameless. And, and that phrase, to prove themselves blameless, indicates that the outcome of the test is going to determine that some are beyond reproach regarding the moral requirements that are described in verses 8 through 9. And there are some who are not going to pass the test. And so we need to be careful. Well, the next three verses focus on family requirements. And verse 11 also kind of breaks the pattern of the earlier part of the passage. And it shows that the deacon's ministry and his qualifications are not only about him, but one who leads in the church of Christ will be greatly helped or hindered by his life partner. If a deacon's wife is above reproach, then she will bring great blessing to his ministry and service. 
But if the woman that he loves is lacking in these required qualities, then she brings great risk in undermining the very ministry of his office and causing great damage to the church. And so therefore, the qualifications of a deacon's wife run parallel to those of a deacon himself. Let's take a look at those. A deacon's wife must first be dignified. Have we seen that word before? Okay. So the term is the same as that required of the husband. Again, speaking of being worthy of honor, a a deacon's wife must have a good reputation that rises from character, which is controlled by the Holy Spirit and controlled by wise living. Deacons must not be double-tongued. Likewise, their wives must not be slanderers. uses a slightly different word. Uh, It's actually the word that comes from diabolo. Uh, You ever had diabolo sauce? Yeah, hot. It's spicy. Sometimes our words are that way. Slander gossip as a man serves in the church his wife is going to accompany him in his ministry and she's going to serve beside him circumstances are going to arise in which his wife his wife's counsel and and prayers are going to come alongside him and she's going to encourage him sometimes in some very difficult times and therefore it's necessary that the deacon's wife also has the character to control her tongue she must not be a malicious talker or gossip deacon's wife must also be sober-minded it means balanced in her character and conduct uh, the word the word can mean sober uh, in the sense of expressing moderation and drinking of wine but the scope here is is broader than that it, it points to the need for a deacon's wife to be clear-headed able to make stable judgments verse 9 expressed the necessity for deacons to hold to the teaching of christianity in a way that his walk matches his faith and likewise, a deacon's wife is called to be faithful in all things. You know, it's noteworthy that the instruction does not just limit her faithfulness to her husband or as a mother, but faithful in all things. This highlights the high calling of the role of the deacon's wife as well as the high standard by which a deacon and his life partner must be held to. Well, a testing ground for the deacon isn't just limited to that. It's not just limited to, limited to his moral qualifications. Those are important. They're essential. It's not just limited to his wife's qualifications and whether she complements his ministry. But um, we also find that the testing ground for the deacon is not limited to the realm of these qualities, but also includes the environment of his home. Paul stated in 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5, that an elder must manage his own household well. And then he poses the question to the elders, if someone does not know how, to know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The same principle is applied to the deacons of the church. He began in verse 11 with the qualifications of the deacon's wife, but now in verse 12 he returns to further qualifications for the deacon himself. He says, first, uh, he is called to be the husband of one wife. Uh, this has led to lots of discussion um, in theology and in church. Our elders had some time with this verse really starting, starting through, you know, what, what exactly does this mean? What, what does this phrase mean in the, the biblical language uh, as well as in our day? And, and certainly there are instances that one's past decisions, there, there are instances where a person's past reproach may disqualify a man from serving in the office of deacon because of the present implications of that past behavior or past decisions but i I think we need to be careful 
Okay, there, there, there's, we can come to a passage like this and assume, you know, we got a checkbox here. You know, we got a deacon. Does it, you know, just check each box off and, and okay, he's good to go or not good to go. We, we need to be careful that we don't constrain diminishing these qualifications, these qualities, to, to just a list of checkboxes. That, that misses the heart of what the passage is getting at. This qualification, I believe, is much deeper than questions about a man's marital status as it penetrates once again to the very nature of the character of this individual as a follower of Jesus Christ. A, a literal translation of the Greek text would read that deacons must be one woman men. You catch that? Think, think about how that's phrased. He has to be a one woman man. Th this qualification reaches beyond issues of polygamy. Okay, so if any of you have two wives, okay, obviously that one's, all right, that's a disqualification. That, that goes right against it. But it's bigger than that. And other specific circumstances that need to, there, that <coughs> there may be other specific circumstances that may indeed disqualify a man from the office. But more important, though, it's a question of a deacon's sexual and marital faithfulness. Because you can have a person who is, is, has been married to one woman his entire life. They got married at 18, and they've been married for 50 years. And you might look at that person and go, well, he's only had one wife, so he passes the test. But, but that's not what the point is here. Is, is he flirtatious? Is he a womanizer? Is he technically faithful, but characterized as a person who plays with fire? Does he test the limits even though he doesn't actually cross the line? God calls men in the church to a higher standard, and deacons must be, deacons must be a man who is characterized by his faithfulness and his devotion to one woman. God calls men in the church to this higher standard, and deacons must help others keep to God's standard by the very example that they set. And so uh, we believe that you know, a deacon um, may have made mistakes in the past. Was he disqualified by the decision that happened 30 years ago? The question that I think this passage is leading to is, is he a one-woman man today? Is he characterized by this quality that he is faithful to his wife? But that's not all. There's one more. He goes on and says, you know, you see, before, bef let me back up. Before God instituted human government, uh, be before the nations of the earth were ever formed, before Israel, before the church, God established the family. And what we find in Scripture is that the home is the first place that the gospel should be heard. And it is the primary teaching ground for the leaders of tomorrow. And the home is one of the proving grounds for the men who, who are called to lead in the church. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that one of the qualifications of deacon is in regard to how he manages his children, how he manages his household. And the emphasis is on well. I want it to be clear. Uh, our Lord does not mandate that our children must be perfect or that our children must never sin. Uh, there, there are a lot of, um, a lot of pastors' families that, that struggle because there's expectations that are put on the children. I, I'm very thankful for a church that has been kind to my children. 
I'm very thankful for a church that has let my children um, be kids, to be teenagers, to do sometimes some stupid things. Um, what was that? You, you, you stand with those three? Okay, yeah. Ice cream, ice cream, yes. Ice cream for those three. Yeah, that, that was a big one, I'm sure. Jared, you grew up in a pastor's home. He knows the pressures that sometimes come with that. And so I'm thankful for a church that's been kind to my children and allowed them to, to grow up and, and not put expectations on them that are more than what, what we're told here. Uh, I'm proud of my children, proud of the, the walk that they've led and, and for the men and women that they've grown up to be. But I want us to understand that, that our, uh, when it comes to our elders, when it comes to our deacons, our pastors, uh, our Lord does not mandate that our children have to be perfect. It doesn't mandate that, that a deacon is a man whose children never sin. We, we, none of us would make it, would we? Children who embarrass their fathers are not the issue of this passage. But how a man manages his home is. A man may be ch- man and yeah that a man may have children who appear to be highly successful from the outside. You look at this family and you go, Here, here's children who wear the right clothes, they make the right decisions, they go to the right schools, they get the right grades, they get the right careers and spouses. That would make any parent proud. But none of this is the standard by which a man is tested before he serves as a deacon. The question is, how is he managing his household? I, I think every pastor, every elder, every deacon is going to have moments where their children are, are, are testing them and, and struggle like all of us do. And, and there's going to be challenges where a child makes decisions and, and, and is tempted. The question is not the behavior of the child in itself, but how does the man handle those situations? How does the man handle his household? When Scripture speaks of a man's home and how he manages his household, this encompasses his marriage, how he provides for his family, the way that he raises and teaches his children, his entire household. A- and so an overbearing father who rules with an iron fist is as poor in management as a parent who abdicates his role of teaching and discipling his children in the way that they should go. And the man that says, ah, my wife got it, I'm not going to worry about it, and they just step aside. That also is not managing his household well. He has an obligation, a calling, as we all do. The church is not looking for perfect leaders any more than our homes require perfect parents. But a deacon must manage his household well, and this demands that his family has proven to be one of his highest priorities. Verse 13 kind of closes our passage with a word of encouragement. The, the whole passage, chapter 3, started with a, a word of encouragement for elders. and says, that, you know, if a man aspires to this task, he, he desires a good thing. And it's a noble task. Serving as elders and deacons, it, it's hard work. A, a man might ask himself, if, if I have to be, to go through this kind of testing, this kind of scrutiny, if people are going to be looking at my, my quality of, of character, why would I want to put myself through that? And I think verse 13 is Paul's reply. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The section about elders started with a similar passage where, again, Paul writes, this is a noble task. 
And yes, serving as elders and deacons is hard work, but these offices will come with trials, and they're going to stretch your faith. But, but God assures us that those who serve well will also experience God's rewards. And, and Paul mentions two. First, those who serve well will gain a good reputation. You, you look at that passage, you might well, that's kind of selfish. Is, is this pride we're talking about? I love how the Bible Knowledge Commentary expresses it. It says, they gain an excellent standing before fellow Christians who understand and appreciate the beauty of humble, selfless, Christ-like service. That's a good thing. Secondly, the one who serves well will find great assurance in the faith. They will see God at work. They will see God doing things. They will see God growing them. And they'll watch as, as God uses them in ministry, uses them in that office of, of a deacon. And they will be emboldened to serve him even greater because of what God does in their life. My friends, God has, gone, God has good things in store for his people. And so let us be those who thank our God that he hasn't just left us to flounder around and try to figure it all out. He hasn't left us to flounder around and, and, and figure out how we choose our leaders. He's given us a process. He's given us the qualifications. And, and he's not given us this list of, does he have this bachelor's degree? Did he go to that seminary? Did, did, he, did he grow up in this church? Who discipled him? He gives us a list of character qualities, instructions for how we choose our leaders. But my prayer is that we would also aspire to live out these qualifications and these characteristics that are to be emulated in our leaders. But all of us would look at this and go, how, how can I be that type of person? How can I pursue this walk with my Savior? Let us be careful as we choose our leaders to meet God's qualifications. And together, let us watch the great things that God will do as all of his people serve as we come to communion today, this is a wonderful time to reflect on our own lives. And perhaps as you look through this list of character qualities for the deacon, um, perhaps you, you reflect in your own life and will go, I said, boy, there's, there's some things that right now are disqualifying me. There's some things that are hindering me in my relationship with the Lord. As we come to the Lord's table, this is an opportunity for each one of us to reflect on our own lives, to confess sin, and to come before our Savior and and restore that relationship by confessing that sin. It is an, a perfect time for us to reflect on, on the incredible sacrifice that our Savior made because of his chesed, because of his compassion, his loving kindness toward us. And that all the sins that I have committed have been washed away because I have a Savior who loved me so much to pay the price that I couldn't pay. And if you have identified yourself with him, just like the person in the Old Testament put their hand on the lamb to identify their sin that was being commuted to this this innocent animal in the same way our savior was innocent guiltless had no sin and faith is our way of identifying with jesus christ believing that jesus christ died for me died on the cross for my sins that faith is our way of identifying with him in the same way as the Old Testament person identified with that lamb. This is an opportunity for us to reflect on the incredible gift that our Savior gave to us.